The Brewer's Journal turned six this autumn. In that time, we've put out more than 50 editions, run countless live events, hosted awards, and also launched this podcast too. But did you know we also have a sister publication for the distilling industry? Well, now you do. The Distiller's Journal is a quarterly publication in print and also runs as a podcast each fortnight. We are also hosting our inaugural Distiller's Lectures alongside the Brewers' Congress in London on the 8th of December. So make sure to check that out. For more info, check out distillersjournal.info. To give you an idea of the types of topics and subjects we cover in the Distiller's Journal, here is the latest episode where we delve into the fascinating world of Tawar. We speak to Rob Arnold, the master distiller at TX Whiskey in Texas, and author of the new book, The Tawar of Whiskey. We hope you enjoy it, and please let us know what you think. Some years back, I was pursuing a master's at Imperial College with my research being in olive trees and olive oil. There are around 140 varieties of oil-producing olives grown commercially in 25 countries, including one struggling company here in the UK. I started looking at the oil from the same species of olive tree, grown the same way, harvested the same way, with the only difference being where they were growing. I found that although the aroma, taste, and appearance was very close between these oils, there's still about 10% difference in the taste and smell due to terroir, the sense of place. Depending on where it was grown, you can taste the difference in wines, coffee, tea, chocolate, and olive oil. Cheese and even some beef claim to have the effect of terroir. Winemakers universally accept that where the grape is grown influences its chemistry, which in turn changes the flavour of the wine. A detailed system has codified the idea that place matters to wine. So why don't we feel the same way about whiskey and the grain used to produce it? Hi, I'm Vela Mitrovich, editor of the Distiller's Journal. And I'm Tim Sheehan. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Rob Arnold, a master distiller originally from Kentucky and author of the book, The Terroir of Whiskey. Burning Bank Distillers told us that there's a difference in flavor depending on whether the barley used is from the east or west coast of Scotland. While the difference is subtle, it's enough that it's a selling point and the bottles sell out even faster than its other whiskies. Still, when you look at what happens to grain in making whiskey, be it barley, wheat, corn or rye, it is hard to believe that there can be any specific flavor left, let alone terroir. We went to Rob Arnold for answers. So um, I grew up in Kentucky, uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a third generation member of the industry. So my grandfather and uncle and great uncles all worked in the bourbon industry. I, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to go into it. I just, uh, it was just something the family did. But I, I came down to Texas to do a PhD in biochemistry. And while in graduate school, I started to make to homebrew and then started dabbling with bench top distillation. And in the lab, my research actually, the process looks pretty similar to how beer and whiskey is made. It just replace yeast with bacteria. And instead of distilling and collecting the distillate, I would distill and collect the pot and try to discover antibiotics in there. So 
uh, a lot of the techniques and the theories um, of you know, distillation and making whiskey, I was I was learning through my research on top of doing stuff at home, you know, home brewing and things like that. So I kind of just became enamored by it. I love the craft. I love the science. The, the family connection and the ties there were very meaningful. And so I decided I was going to leave my PhD program early, opt out with a master's degree and, and go make whiskey. Some whiskeys are labeled by the type of grain species, barley for single malt whiskey, corn for bourbon, but outside of a very few exceptions, there is no mention of the grain variety. If a wine is labeled Napa Valley, you know where the grapes are growing, with spirits, the grains could come from almost anywhere in the world. You have to wonder, has it always been this way? No. If you look at it, it's of interesting history. The whiskey industry has basically been tied to the evolution of, of grain and the, the rise of commodities. Up until the late 1800s, you know, really 1880, 1890, there was, there was no such thing as a seed company. So every variety of grain that existed would have been what we call today heirlooms. And those would have been selected by farmers um, for whatever traits they were interested in. And that would have obviously been things like yield and how accessible it was from a harvesting standpoint, um, you know, standability, height, things like that, but also flavor. Because remember, we didn't used to feed grain to chickens and cows and make fuel ethanol. It used to be an important source of food. It still is, but it used to be something that we uh, we, we cared about the flavor and the corn or the wheat or the rye. It was a, it was a critical part of the process because that was what we were feeding our families. So that, that time period, everything up until the late 1800s and even the early 1900s, you had just local regional varieties that were adapted to a place and handed down from farmer to farmer. And with that, you have, at, back then, you had thousands of distilleries, um, you know, dotting the landscape here in the United States. And I'm not as up to speed on what it looked like over in Scotland and Ireland, but I'm sure it's somewhat similar. But here in the United States, there were thousands of distilleries that were in the towns and cities throughout the country. and they would have bought local grain. They would have bought these locally adapted um, regional grain varieties that we would call heirlooms today. So you had this importance on local, you had this importance on the flavor that would have been in that grain, and they would have known no different. There was no such thing as a, a high-yielding modern variety hybrid that was suppressed in flavor. There was no such thing as that. But that all started the shift, and the modern grain industry has never been the same since. As the, you know, we get into the 20th century and especially after Prohibition, after World War II, you had synthetic uh, fertilizers, uh, chemicals that we could use to boost yields in ways we never had known before. And you just, you had this massive grain surplus and that was perfect for the commodity market. And all of a sudden we had so much grain that we could feed our animals this grain and meat became much more, you know, there's just a higher production of meat Then white flour was very important. Um, roller mills allowed white flour to be achieved readily. And you just had these markets, the feed market, the fuel market that just didn't care about flavor. And the plant breeders said, okay, you want yield, we'll give you yield. But then inadvertently we've discovered that when you breed for yield, you, uh, you don't 
do it on purpose, but you inadvertently select against flavor. Um, so it's a deal with basically this thing called genetic drift. And so all of our high yielding varieties just have a lower diversity of flavor and a lot of times duller flavor than what exists in the species as a whole, whether it's corn or wheat or tomatoes or chickens or whatever it is. In 2014, Rob was visiting Sawyer Farms, a large farm which supplied almost all the barley, rye, wheat, and corn used to make spirits at TX Whiskey, where Rob worked. While watching corn being harvested with John Sawyer, the two men got into a discussion about this specific corn, what were its uses, and the whole idea of flavor, which John Sawyer sidestepped. Rob was asking him at what point was flavored considered, and the farmer answered, us farmers don't get paid for flavor. Grain is a commodity. We get paid for yield. Yeah, I mean, you, and it's because of the industries that are buying the majority of grain. I mean, it's important for us to remember that the whiskey industry is a very small player in the grain trade as a whole. More important when you look at malted barley or just barley production in general, but when you look at corn and wheat, I mean, we're, we're a drop in the bucket. And the main industries that are buying these grains and that the farmers are growing for are fuel and feed and white flour production. And those industries just are not demanding flavor as an important trait in the grade of the crop. And a farmer is going to get paid based on the grade that it meets. And those grades are usually set by, like here it's the United States Department of Agriculture and other countries, it's their own government entities. But that's what's deciding how much that farmer is getting paid on the commodity market. Most of the wheat grown is, whether it's hard wheat or soft wheat, it's going to be eventually end up in the belly of a human. But when it's turned into white flour, which is essentially the very flavorless endosperm of grain that is just the starch, the flavor that was in the germ, you know, the embryo, which is packed with flavor, and the bran, it's not important. You know, what's, you know, their important goal is yield and then milling it to create a, a very shelf-stable white flour. So it's just this, the, the nature of the, the market in general. And what distillers, in my opinion, and what a lot of distillers are starting to do, what, what we have to do is break away from that commodity grain system if we ever want to, in a meaningfully in a meaningful way, pursue terroir and highlight terroir in our whiskeys. You have to break away from the commodity market. You have to find ways to create direct farmer relationships or at least know, even if you work with a broker, have a lot of complete transparency as to what varieties you're working with, what farmers you're working with, and work with them and actively try to do things to highlight flavor diversity that can come from the nuances of terroir, the nuances from the variety and the nuances from the growing environment and how the farmer farms that land and what approaches they use. And then we can, and then the farmers will care about flavor because we should be paying premium for flavor. The same way a winemaker, you know, the same way wine grapes, a lot of times the cost of the grape from a particular vineyard will correlate more to the cost of that bottle of wine that's going to eventually be made from it. Tawar is a word most of us think we know what it means, and a few are actually confident on pronouncing it, but the exact meaning is actually something completely different than most of us expect. It's not a complicated phenomenon and it's it's a very grounded scientific you know the science of what this means is, is very much central to a lot of aspects of 
whether it's humans, you know, the science in regards to medicine or science in regards to agriculture. And it's, it's basically talking about how the variety, the genetics, and the growing environment impact flavor. So it's nature and nurture, right? Nature is the genetics that that seed variety contains, the blueprint, and the environment is nurture because the environment, the conditions, whether it's climate, soil, rainfall, does the farmer use synthetic chemicals or are they doing tillage or what any of these things could are environmental effects that can impact how that DNA is expressed. And that is terroir, it's the intertwining of genetics and growing environment and how flavor is impacted by that. It's the intertwining of nature and, and how flavor is impacted by that. The same way I'm a human, I have a DNA blueprint, my my genetics, that's my my nature. But whether I live in Texas or Alaska or Australia or smoke a lot of you know, cigars or don't or hang out in the sun a lot or I don't all that stuff is my I'm it's the environment that could impact how my DNA is read and therefore the traits that I express are impacted whether it's my hair color or my skin complexion or and you know all these things it's, it's something that is really it translates to to any species and to any organism Every organism on this planet, the traits that they express are impacted by the genetics and the environment. So that is terroir to me. So when you look at the importance of cast, the aging process, where it's aged, the yeast and the malting process of the barley, you're left wondering if it's really that important where the grain comes from. In our research, we found, uh, and we have, aside from the, the book, from the terroir of whiskey, the book that I published through Columbia, University Press, which highlights a lot of this research that I'm talking about from us and other people in the industry that have been working on this. But in our research with Texas A&M, uh, through my PhD studies, we found that uh, a lot of the aldehydes in, in whiskey, which are derived from uh, oxidation of lipids in the grain during mashing and then distillation during high temperature uh, processes, those are impacted by terroir and those are very important whether it's things like compounds like methyl butanol you know these compounds that can give nice chocolatey uh, notes to the to the whiskey nutty aromas things like that those are impacted by terroir we know that ester production from yeast during fermentation is impacted by terroir and esters are one of the most important flavor compounds probably the most important flavor compound in whiskey aside from the ethanol um, and that was a very important finding too, because that's the yeast, right? The yeast is making the esters that are important in whiskey or the precursors to esters that undergo reactions during maturation or even distillation. How is the yeast, you know, the byproducts of a yeast fermentation, those flavor compounds, how are they impacted by terroir? And it's what we realized is that it's because the nutrient profiles were feeding the yeast are based on the composition of the grain, and that composition is impacted by terroir, impacted by where the grain was grown and the variety of grain. Unfortunately, it's not 100% straightforward. So you really have, it's not, it's not a straight line where you, you have this very complicated tapestry that is whiskey flavor, and you pull one thread on it and you can shift that tapestry some. How much does it matter? That's a, that's a debate that 
will never be answered because it does depend on how much you want to highlight it in your process. If you are segregating varieties and farms and distilling them separately and them separately, um, you're gonna you're gonna find some distinct differences in the whiskeys that are produced from them. So it it to me it depends on how you pursue it and. In the end, we're not tapping in generally to unknown rare flavor compounds, whether it's whiskey or wine or beer. We're, on the, in most cases, we're talking about the same set of 50 to 80 compounds that are important for flavor across all these beverages. What impacts flavor is the concentration of those compounds. And so different, you know, terroir will play a role in the concentration of those compounds in the final product. And remember too, during maturation, we've got multiple things happening. Yes, we have extraction of oak compounds from the wood, things like vanillin, things like certain volatile phenols, guiacol, and you've got oak lactones, really important for flavor. These are coming from the oak, but you've got all of the compounds that were produced from the mashing process, really degradation of the grain, extraction of those flavor compounds during mashing, and then the production of flavor compounds by yeast during fermentation. And reactions between those compounds and also ones that are extracted from oak or just that are present in the whiskey during in the barrel, you're going to have reactions happening during maturation that will lead to increase of flavor, flavor diversity, things like that. So the stuff that you produce during mashing and fermentation, they're not covered up during maturation. They're the you know they're precursors to reactions that can happen during the maturation process. To quote from the book, before making efforts to capture and highlight terroir, large distilleries would need to be convinced it's something real and worthwhile and something that commodity grain elevators can't deliver. To be honest, even small distilleries would take some convincing. Although grain identity preservation is much easier in 2,000 pound bulk bags, there are still the financial and logical issues of finding the right farms, harvesting the identity preserved grain separately, and storing the bulk bags between harvests. In addition to these challenges, most grain farmers have spent their lives selling solely to the grain elevators that serve the commodity market. For farmers to grow, harvest, store, and sell grain that maintains the identity of terroir and is destined for whiskey as opposed to the commodity grain elevator, distillers would have to reward them for their efforts. So the question becomes, for both small and large distilleries, is it worth the effort? Yeah, and it's a a personal decision that each, each distillery is going to have to decide. And but you're right. I mean, there is a logistical effort when it comes to highlighting terroir in a whiskey. There is a financial uh, burden that's going to be there because it's going to cost more than just buying from the commodity market. Even if you're buying from specialty grain brokers that deal with whiskey distilleries and breweries and specialty food producers, you're, you're still going to pay more than you will with any, you know, with any of the more proven systems. So it comes down to a lot of things. I mean, is there a marketing? Is this where you're going to hang some of your your marketing uh, power on? You know, is that going to be if you're not going to talk about it, don't do it because it's not worth the effort. But if you're trying to tap into, uh, to me, and if you look at like the new distilleries, especially this whole new movement of craft distilleries, and you have this explosion of the number of distilleries that exist now, um, they to succeed, you have to first own your own backyard. You have to be able to to you know, you're not going to 
you're not going to invest if you can't win just in our example Fort Worth where we were and and we did a great job connecting to the community of Fort Worth and to me to say that you're you're drinking local because it's made in that place but also because the ingredients come from that place is a is a really powerful message and it can, it can it's obviously a flavor implication but it also goes beyond that you you have the connection to your, your local region, you have the ability to create relationships with farmers and use that in your messaging, you have the ability to really focus on sustainability to, to your area and, and also tell that story. You know, the, the, the unique nuances of flavor that you're gonna gain, will that truly lead to more case sales? I don't know if that alone would, but the whole story together, I think is a powerful, you know, powerful message and, and it's an authentic message that, that can drive case sales. Waterford Distillery in Ireland is creating single farm whiskies as opposed to perhaps using the same variety but coming from different farms. What helps Waterford pull this off though is that Ireland's grain farms are relatively small. We uh, just some background TX whiskey had the same relationship just with one farmer. So John Sawyer grows all of the grain that's used the TX whiskey. That's one approach. Waterford's is a really unique cool approach that more closely mirrors a lot of the, the way a lot of winemakers would would do this and that's the single farm distillation that you mentioned so they have i don't know how many farmers now 40 50 probably more than that that they work with that are all around ireland and they all grow different varieties some, some will grow the same but there's multiple varieties in the mix among their farmers and waterford will pay these farmers more assuming the grain meets spec they will harvest the grain they will store it in specialized compartments at uh, what they call their barley cathedral and keep each farm and variety farm separate and then malt them separately um, working with i believe minch malt and then distill them separately and then age them separately so that a, the, the barley that came from a particular farm is never mingled with barley from other farms until the last stage, until blending. And that's when um, their, their distillation team will come in and, and they will begin to blend different farms together for their cuvee expression, or they'll just bottle the farms separately for single farm expressions. But they're, um, they're just, Basically, to me, it's this way to to not homogenize flavor at the, at the beginning of the process. They're saying, no, 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 we're not going to combine all of the grain. We're going to separate it completely. We're going to have everything separate until the end. And then we'll blend if we decide we want to do that. And, and that way we can layer flavor on top of each other. It's a way to just increase diversity of flavor throughout the entire process so that as a blend, you have that much more to work with, you know, that many more shades of different colors and and you can paint more pictures so i think what they're doing is the the to me the most authentic way to i wouldn't say just pursue terroir because if you just have one farmer that you work with that's an amazing way to do it as well but what they're doing allows you to explore terroir and how important it can be in a way that i don't think any other model can do no, granted, remember too, one of the reasons they do, they work with so many different farmers is because 
you have smaller farms over there and they might only have 20, 30 acres devoted to barley. Whereas, you know, in Texas, for example, we've got 10,000 acre farms that can easily supply even a large production facility. Um, even a, let's just say a 24 inch beer still, it's making hundreds of barrels a week. So there's, I don't know, I think there's a right or wrong way to do it, but if you want to really explore what terroir can do, and how much it can impact flavor and create diversity of flavor. Uh, I think what Waterford's doing is the way to do it. From your perspective, what could UK craft whiskey distilleries be doing to utilize and market the idea of terroir? Well, you've got great barley already if you're focusing on malt whiskey, but you and you have some great malt houses as well. Um, but you have a similar system as you do here with the commodity market in the United States. And that's that you have approved malting varieties of barley and the farmers are going to grow those. And then the barley is, is shuffled to the malt house to or first to large elevators where the it's combined and mingled and then sent to the malt house. So you, you're going to have to, whether you're in the United States or the UK or Ireland or Australia or Japan or Taiwan, it doesn't matter. You're going to have to break away from that commodity model and find ways to what well, the the technique the process is called identity preservation you're preserving the identity of of the grain by separating or, or not co-mingling different farms together and the same way we you know like i mentioned earlier i mean you've got some powerful messages and some authentic messages when you can really point to the land where the grain came from and that's that 20 acre plot that soil is what cultivated the ingredients for our whiskey. And that's the farmer, that, that guy or that girl, that's, that's the person that grew it. And I know all the details around how they, how they care for their land and how they encourage soil health and how they're being good stewards of the environment. And, and that to me is a powerful message that that really, it goes beyond flavor in a lot of ways. You know, you're, you're talking about a shift in moving away from the industrial model of agriculture, which is not a sustainable approach, and finding ways to tap into a sustainable approach that has marketing potential and also has potentials when it comes to finding new flavors. And to me, terroir is all about discovering old chemistry that we've lost through the modern process of plant breeding and the industrial agriculture. It's about discovering new chemistry that, and you know, the old and the new chemistries that we can discover will lead to diversity of flavor, new flavors, flavors we've forgotten. But then in a lot of ways, the part that to me is more important than even that is, is breaking away from the commodity system, breaking away from industrial agriculture so that we can be a part of the sustainable ag movement in a meaningful way and not just in a, a way that will impede Wall Street investors or whoever, in a meaningful way, you're actually in touch and connected to the land. And you're not just trying to check boxes for who you're working with. You know what land your grain came from. The Distillers Journal Podcast, production and review media, produced and hosted by me, Vela Mitrovich, and Tim Sheehan. Sound engineering is by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young with executive producer Rory Harris. 
I'd like to give special thanks to Rob Arnold, the author of the Terroir or Whiskey, our sponsors, and most of all to you, our listening compadres. Have a good one. <laughs>